Father, we thank you uh, just for the freedom to gather together and uh, just to enjoy time together as your, as your family, uh, that we can look around and call each other's brothers and sisters, we can learn from each other, that the different ways that you've made us and gifted us um, complement each other, and uh, because we're together, uh, we're better, uh, we're made more Christ-like. And so, God, as we come together now and just sit under your word, uh, would you grant us humility and uh, help us to really honestly consider our own lives, and as we talk about growing up into spiritual maturity, Lord, I, I pray that we would take this call seriously, that it would be something that we earnestly desire and want to pursue after uh, for the glory of Christ. And so uh, do that now. Help us, Lord. Uh, we thank you again for our time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I know that for you as college students, you have a lot of responsibilities, right? You have a lot of expectations. Um, but one of the most basic and fundamental expectations that is set out for you is very simple. It's the expectation to grow up, right? And, and really, if you think about it, that's an expectation in every stage and every season of life. Uh, as a child, there is the expectation that you'll grow up, right? That you're going to reach, at some point, the, that next milestone, whether it's speaking for the first time or walking, uh, getting potty trained, and the list goes on and on. And that expectation continues on, right, throughout childhood, into your teens, into adulthood, and even throughout the rest of your life, right? We're all expected just to keep progressing and to keep growing up as old as you might be. But I think for you guys as college students, that expectation and that responsibility feels a little more pronounced, right? It's like a little more obvious or a little more clear. And maybe it's the fact that there are some pretty drastic changes that recently took place for you, right? That, that take place between right now and maybe before. Uh, for example, now you've moved out, you live in the dorms or in your own apartments. Now you have certain freedoms and you live on your own. Uh, so maybe that's part of it. Or, or maybe it's the fact that, that you are forced to grow up. Uh, like, even if you have never cooked a meal before in your life, or you've like never done the laundry before, a day in your life, you're going to have to, at some point or another, do those things, right? You're forced to do those things. And whether it's a square meal or an instant, whatever it is, you're going to have to eat something that is made by your own hands, right? It's, it's inevitable. You're forced to do that. Um, I guess technically you don't have to do your laundry, right? But because you love the people around you, inevitably there's a point where you will do your laundry, right? You're going to attempt to wash your clothes at some point. Um, but, but growing up is hard, and uh, there's a phrase for it. People call it growing pains, right? It's, it doesn't always come smoothly, and I'm sure we've all had that incident where we are trying to do something, uh, adulting, which is what people call it, right? A basic life skill, and we're trying to do something for the first time. And maybe you feel like you must have missed the class because somehow everyone else in the world knows how to do this thing, but you don't know how to do it. Uh, maybe it's like, I don't know, you poured the bleach and the detergent into the dryer rather than the washer. I don't, it's like something really simple that, for some reason, was really hard for you to do. Uh, anyone watch Terrace House in here? Yeah? yeah this happened in Terrace House recently. Um, there's this character who, he's like the youngest character in the show, or on that cast, and 
they're telling him, hey, like, you got to grow up. You know, you got to be an adult. And so he, like, takes that to heart, and he tries to make pasta. Um, but what he does, he's trying to make, like, carbonara pasta. But what he does is he gets this giant pot of water, and he literally dumps everything in there. Like, he dumps in the pasta, uh, he dumps in the broccoli, and he even, like, cracks an egg and dumps it in the water. <laughs> and at the very end, when it's done, he, like, pours everything out through the strainer, <laughs> and just everything washes away. <laughs> and the commentators are just totally hating on him. Um, but maybe, like, that's been you before, right? With something like that, or just a basic life skill, and, like, you just failed miserably. Um, but growing up is hard. Uh, but as much as growing up is, is partly trial by fire or, or learning the hard way, I think we need to realize that we also can't just assume that it'll happen. Right? We can't just assume that we will grow up unless we put in the effort. Now, there's a big difference between just haphazardly developing and intentionally maturing. And I think, unfortunately, in our day, it seems like that responsibility to grow up, that expectation, is getting pushed back more and more. Uh, maybe you guys experienced this. A lot of people have written about this thing that they, they call the new extended adolescence. Right? They say things like 25 is the new 18. Um, and, and sure, part of that might be because of just like how much extra school you guys are doing now, uh, or student debt, or like people just live at home after graduation. But I think along with that, I'm afraid many of us have put off areas of our lives in which we need to grow, in which we are expected to grow. And these areas are outside of just like your classes or your grades or your exams. And just as it is our responsibility and expectation to grow up into adulthood by learning basic life skills, for example, it's also the expectation for us as believers to grow up into spiritually or spiritual maturity. Right? That is the expectation for us as believers, that we're constantly maturing. And we all age and we all physically mature, whether we acknowledge it or not. Um, and some people are in denial about that. But we don't necessarily automatically grow into spiritual maturity. And I think there's, when you look in scripture, there's a lot of places that speaks to this. Um, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul tells this church how he had to address them as infants in Christ, as infants in Christ. And he says, I had to give you guys milk, not solid food. Um, and uh, he had to do that because they weren't mature enough, right? And, and they were expected to be. They were supposed to be at a certain point, but Paul couldn't give them solid food yet. He had to still give them basic milk. Uh, Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, there's similar imagery. Uh, the author says, by this time, you ought to be teachers, Right? That is the expectation, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. All right, so you see that all over the Bible, uh, but let me just say this. Uh, we're all different. Okay? Let me just put that out there first, that God grows us from different starting points at a different pace through different ways. Okay, so we're all going to look different from one another, but there's that same expectation that I've been saying we're all expected to grow. Um, if you guys can turn with me in, to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be kind of flipping throughout the book of Colossians, but we'll start in chapter 1. And we'll look at verses 28 and 29. Paul says that this maturity really is the goal of ministry. So I could, I could take what Paul is saying 
in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, and this could be the mission statement of Beacon. Like, this could be my job description. This is what he says. He says, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See that? Paul is doing what he's doing in order to present everyone mature in Christ. And so, uh, even before we jump into some of the specifics, right, even before we jump into what does this look like, let me just ask you right off the bat, do you want to grow into maturity? Is that something that you desire? Do you want to own that responsibility? Right? Is that a goal that you care about and that you're after? To grow into spiritual maturity. Now, my goal for tonight is to challenge you towards that. And like I said, I'm going to be pulling from different parts of Colossians. And these are just a few areas that Scripture challenges us to grow in. Um, but as you listen, I want you to take inventory of your own life. And I want you to ask yourself, where are you? Like, where do you want to be headed? And I'm actually hoping that, I'm just going to give you guys things to think about, and I'm hoping that this will lead to uh, just some good discussions later in small groups tonight. So let's jump into this. Let me just give you kind of the overarching verse that we're going to look at. Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7. Um, Paul says something similar. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Right? So just as you received Christ, walk in him, be rooted in him, built up, abounding in thanksgiving. And this is what it looks like specifically. So point number one, growing up in your understanding and application of the gospel. Growing up in your understanding and application of the gospel. And I get this from verses 8 to 23 of Colossians 2. Um, the context of this letter written to the Colossians is that as Paul was writing uh, to the church there, there was some form of false teaching. And uh, people call it the Colossian heresy that was plaguing the church. And we don't know the exact specifics of what was going around. We know maybe parts of it. And it seems that one of the major points of this false teaching was that you had to add something else on top of the gospel. Right? If you guys remember, uh, if you were here, I, I think a couple years ago or last year, we, were, we went through the letter of Colossians as a church on Sundays. And, and one of the like, catchphrases that we threw around was, a Christ plus something gospel. Right? A Christ plus something gospel. And for this church, they were adding things such as higher forms of revelation or religious festivals um, or circumcision or these additional restrictions on top of the gospel. And they're saying, hey, you not only need to believe in Christ, but you need to do these things as well. You need to believe in these things as well or receive these things as well. And if you read through chapter 2, you'll see Paul allude to some of these specific things. Um, but look at what Paul says in response, right? Verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He jumped down to verse 16, a similar idea. He says, therefore, in light of the gospel, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right, so Paul names some of those things that these false teachers were heaping on top of the gospel. Um, but do you get what he's saying here? 
right? He's saying, why are you adding to the all-sufficient gospel? That this is what Christ has done for you, right? Verses 8 to 14, he gives a bunch of theology about the cross. This is what Christ has done for you. And he says, in fact, this man-made religion, this thing that you're heaping on top of the gospel, it's powerless. Verse 23, he says, it can't stop the desires of the flesh, right? It doesn't do anything. Only the gospel can do that. And so here's what I want us to take away from this. Uh, being rooted and built up in Christ, being established in the faith, right? Verses 6 and 7. It means that we are growing in understanding how the gospel practically plays out in our lives. Okay, we're understanding how the gospel practically plays out in our lives. Now, maybe for some of you, that starts with just learning information. Okay, that just starts with, like, learning doctrine and theology. Learning what the gospel is and what Christ has done. Right? That might start for you with being able to like, define and differentiate between biblical terms uh, such as adoption or justification or propitiation or redemption or all of these terms that we find in Scripture. Maybe you need to start there. Right? Because in order to get how the gospel plays out in your life, you need to first understand what Christ did. Right? You need that information first. But for the rest of you, I think this passage shows us that we should be growing in our understanding of how the gospel applies, right? how the gospel actually works out in our lives. And for these Colossian believers, they should have understood the gospel well enough to know that adding these man-made requirements was anti-gospel. Right? They should have understood, this is what the gospel means, this is why we shouldn't believe in this false teaching. And so what might that look like for you? Right? How, how might the gospel which is Christ's life, death, and resurrection, how does that inform and transform different specific areas of your life? For example, are you growing in understanding more and more of how the gospel informs and transforms your understanding of identity? Right? That, that's a big topic for you in college, right? Whether that's the major you're going to study, the people you hang out with, uh, just different titles you want to gain eventually in the future. What does it mean that the gospel gives you a new identity? Right? What does it mean that you are an adopted child of God? Or what does it mean that you are dressed in Christ's righteousness? How does the gospel transform how you understand identity? Or how about this? Are you growing in understanding more and more of how the gospel informs and transforms your understanding of dating? Right? Are you able to connect uh, the shape of the gospel to what marriage in the future should look like? Are you able to connect the sufficiency of the gospel to what it means to be content right now as a single person. Right, so does the gospel like reach into those areas of your life? What about something really complex? Are you growing in understanding how the gospel might begin to affect and shape the way that you minister to people who are struggling? Right? Maybe people who are struggling with like same-sex attraction or depression or some mental illness. Can you connect the brokenness of this sin-cursed world with their personal struggles? Can you connect the hope of renewal, of, of the truth that everything will be made right again because of the gospel? Can you connect that to their life? And I'm not saying that we need to always have all the right answers, right? We don't need to always have the right things to say all the time. But I, what I am saying is the gospel should at least begin to inform the way that we think about those things, right? It should at least give us something to say should at least give us some hope to offer. 
or if we know the good news. You see, the gospel isn't just relevant for that one-time decision that you made when you became a Christian. It's relevant for all of life, from beginning to end. And I think we know that, right? We, we, we've heard that many times before. But we can't treat it like it's detached from the things that we think and experience. And so maybe just a really practical exercise for you guys would be just to sit down and like, think through some of the major categories of your life and just ask yourself, okay, how do I, how do I tend to think through these parts of my life? Right? How do I just naturally approach this? What are my goals in this area? And then, how does the gospel, or maybe even something more specific, how does like, the doctrine of adoption, how does that truth transform how I think about that thing? Right? How does that transform my approach to these things? So that's the first area I think I want us to consider is, uh, are we understanding how to apply the gospel into the different areas of our lives, the real and practical areas of our lives? Point number two, growing up in what your priorities are. Okay, growing up in what your priorities are. This is from Colossians 3, 1 to 4. So let me read that for us. Paul writes in 3, 1, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, this passage is pretty well known, but this paragraph is kind of the hinge point of this letter where Paul is transitioning from theology in chapters 1 and 2 to practice in chapters 3 and 4. And he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, right? If all of this in chapter one and two is true, this, uh, the gospel is true, then he says, let me lay out what that looks like practically. And the broad kind of general command that Paul gives is what he says, to seek the things that are above, right? And he says that again in the next verse. He says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And what is the reason that he gives, right? If, if you piece all the things he puts together, it's that you have died with Christ and you've been raised with him. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God, that Christ is your life now. That's the reason that you seek the things that are above rather than things on, that are on this earth. And what he's talking about there is this enormous doctrine that we call the believer's union with Christ, okay, union with Christ. And this it's just a, a way of saying that you've been joined to Christ as a believer, right? that you share in what he did, you share in his benefits. And your union with him, if you read it in the context of what Paul is saying, he's, that your union with him is actually the power for obeying him, right? It's the power for carrying out the instructions that he's going to give in the following verses. Um, some people say it's the indicative before the imperative, Right? This, is what Christ, this is what God has done, this is the truth, and this is what we do in light of it. And so the big idea is that you're not defined by yourself anymore. Right? You're defined by Christ. That he is your new identity. And with a new identity comes new priorities. Right? From no longer seeking the things on this earth, but seeking the things that are above where Christ is. So, again, I want you to think through the things that are important to you. Think through your goals and your priorities. Think through the things that you have set out to accomplish this year. And when you go through those things, when you take inventory of those things, which category would they fall into? Would they fall into things that are above 
or things that are on earth. Now, the thing is, the difference might not look, at least on the outside, it might not look that drastic. Right? For example, for these few years that you are in school, most of you are in school, uh, you are a student. And like, that needs to be a priority. Okay? If it's not, it should be. As much as you're involved in like, WCF or whatever. Like, you, should, you're, you should care about school. But you can do that as someone who is pursuing the things that are on earth, or you can do that as someone who is pursuing things that are above. Right? In fact, as believers, knowing Christ injects so much more significance in the things that we do. Um, he's going to go on. He's going to talk about serving your masters, right? Uh, he injects so much more significance. You're not just serving your masters. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So our, our union with Christ not only assigns us new priorities and goals as believers, but if you actually look at it, it frees us from having to pursue some of the things that used to be so important to us. It doesn't just give us new things to do. It actually frees us from serving the things that we wanted to serve in the past. Um, let me try to illustrate. For example, you no longer have to chase after your own significance. Why? Because Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. What that means is that when God looks at you, your life is hidden with him. When God looks at you, he sees Christ's life and Christ's perfection. Right? You want to talk about significance? It doesn't get any more significant than that. You no longer have to chase after just like, accumulating stuff for yourself in this life anymore. Why? Because Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Right? Glory is coming at the end when Christ comes back. The best is yet to come. And so you don't have to just chase after getting stuff right now anymore. And so the fact that we've been united with Christ changes our priorities. We've been given a new identity. Um, point number three is growing up and putting off and putting on. Okay, growing up and putting off and putting on. Um, this is in verses 5 to 17 of chapter 3. So like I said earlier, verses 1 to 4 is this big picture idea of new life in Christ. Right? And then the remainder of this chapter is going to lay out what that looks like more specifically. And as you kind of maybe glance through those verses, I want you to notice there's a pattern there. And it's this biblical pattern or language of putting off and putting on. Okay, putting off and putting on. Um, look at verse 9, second half of verse 9. Paul says, put off the old self with its practices, right? And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Right, put off and put on. And so what are some of the things that we are called, to, called as believers to put off? Um, look at verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Um, jump down to verse 8. He says, Put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Right? These are all things we are called to put off or to put to death. Uh, what about the things that we're called to put on? Look at verse 12. Paul says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, obviously, there's a lot in each of those lists, right? And I think 
the mistake that we make sometimes is we just look at these lists in Scripture and we just see like one giant thing. So we never actually consider the things that Paul mentions. Um, so maybe it'd be good on your own time just to like sit down and go through each of these, each of these things one by one and like honestly ask yourself, how am I doing with this? Like, how am I doing with patience or forgiveness um, or kindness or humility? Where might sexual immorality or covetousness or anger uh, or obscene talk be showing up in my life? Am I growing in having a compassionate heart? Am I growing in forbearance? Am I growing, am I, am I more quick to forgive than I was before? And all of these things have to do with our character, right? Our character, the kind of people that we are, the kind of people that we want to become. And growing up into spiritual maturity means that we are growing to become more like Christ, right? And how do we kind of measure that? How do we see that? Well, we look at these, this fruit, right? We look at these Christ-like qualities. Are they becoming more and more apparent in our life? And here's something that we need to keep in mind, okay? And um, we're going to expand more on this later on, but uh, we need to remember that people don't change overnight, okay? People don't change overnight, um, I thought it was interesting that Paul put something like sexual immorality or anger in the same list as something like obscene talk from your mouth. Okay, and maybe for you, like, or for those of you who, who have struggled before with lust or sexual immorality um, or anger, you know that it can, like, that battle against those sins can be like a lifelong battle, right? It's like, it's really hard. Uh, you're constantly fighting, and you'll be fighting for years. But then you read something like obscene talk. And like for me at least, the first thing that comes to mind when I, when I hear obscene talk is, is cussing. Um, and so in other words, I read that and I'm like, okay, Paul says don't cuss. Um, and I think, okay, I think all of us have in our minds these like red flagged sins, right? And, and what I mean by that is like certain sins which for whatever reason, like we really exaggerate how bad it is. You know, and for me it's cussing, okay? One of those sins that is like a huge red flag for me is cussing. And I don't know why, maybe it's just how I grew up or my background, whatever. Um, but like for me, whenever I hear a believer cuss, um, this just mental alarm like instantly goes off in my head. I probably don't hear like the next 10 seconds of what they say. Um, and and I, like I might be questioning this person's salvation. <laughs> um, and just to be clear, okay, I, I don't think Christians should cuss. Um, no obscene talk from your mouth seems pretty black and white to me. Okay, so... Let me just put that to bed. But I think in my mind, it can be easy for me to just think, dude, like, why are you cussing? Right? Just don't cuss. Right? Just turn that off. Just like, like, don't do it. Why do you do it? It's so simple. Just don't do it. But of course, it's usually not that simple. Right? It's not that simple. You can't just turn it off. What I'm trying to say is we all have different real struggles. And I think what Paul is trying to do here isn't to give us this, like, yes, no checklist. Like, oh, check here if this is an issue for you. Leave it blank if it's not. You know, like, just turn this on, turn this off. Rather, he's talking about putting on and putting off as a continual habit. Okay, this is an ongoing process. That in the same way that you get up each morning and you get dressed, you put on clothes, we are called as believers to put off sin and to put on holy living. Right, you got to do this every day, all of us. It's not as easy as just, oh, I don't, just, I don't struggle with that. I don't have to worry about that. 
There's one um, specific application I want to focus on. It's in verse 16. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, one of the marks of spiritual maturity, right, is that God's word dwells in you richly. And that word richly, I think, communicates the idea of abundance, right? It, it dwells in you a lot, in excess, in abundance. Um, the picture is that we breathe in God's word and we naturally exhale it out, right? It overflows out of us into the lives of others. And so there is another checkpoint, another marker of uh, spiritual maturity. Is that true of your life? As you think about your conversations, can you say that they have the aroma of the word of Christ? And are you able to share with one another what you've been learning about God from your time with him? Or when someone brings you an issue that they're struggling with, do you know how to help them with the gospel and with scripture? Or if you're not there yet, is that a goal that you're currently working towards? I want you to look, what's the specific application that Paul gives of the word of Christ dwelling in you richly? Right, Verse 16, he says that you are teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Okay, and maybe you read that verse, that phrase, uh, those words teaching and admonishing, and immediately you think like pastor, right, or church leader. They, they're the ones who teach and they're the ones who admonish. And that's their job. But look at verse 16. Who, like, who is Paul talking about or talking to? Whose job is this in this passage? It's every believer, right? It's all of us. We're all called in one degree or another to teach or to admonish. And that doesn't necessarily mean we like, give a full-on sermon. But Paul says that Scripture should be dwelling in us enough to the point where we're able to help each other, right? Even to the point where we can impart knowledge to one another, uh, what else does he say? He says, right, he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Okay, so don't, con- don't disconnect this specific phrase too much from the surrounding context. Okay, remember, Paul is talking about uh, the word of God dwelling in you richly. He's talking about teaching and admonishing. And then all of a sudden, he talks about singing. And so what is he saying? He's saying that singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is one way that we allow the word of God to dwell in our hearts. Right? That singing together, singing to one another, is one means of teaching one another in all wisdom. And so here's another thing to consider. With, with all of that in mind, do you see why something like corporate worship, right? congregational singing, is so important to us as believers? Do you see why we care about singing songs with theologically rich and precise lyrics rather than just songs that just sound good? It's because of what this verse says, right? Singing together is a way of encouraging and teaching one another the word of God. It's a way of treasuring and reminding ourselves of God's word, allowing it to dwell richly in our hearts. And so do you want another uh, really simple but telling measure of spiritual maturity? Well, it's do you sing during worship? Like seriously, I think that, that shows spiritual maturity, right? Do we know like what's going on in that moment of corporate worship? I think one of the things that hinders us and one of the biggest markers of what maturity is is being able to think beyond ourselves. And I think corporate worship is just one instance of that. And the next point, Paul gives us more examples of this. So point number four. Another area to consider for us is growing up 
in fulfilling our roles and relationships. Growing up in fulfilling our roles and relationships. Um, in verse 18, Paul transitions to instructions for how we are to relate to one another, right? Whether it's a husband to a wife or parents to children or masters to slaves. Um, I'm going to read this, this big chunk. So verse, starting verse 18, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, there's a lot in there, but I think uh, maybe without oversimplifying what Paul is saying here, I think one of the common threads in his instructions in each of these different relationships is this question, who does this relationship exist for? Right? Who does this relationship exist for? Whose interest should you be seeking? Whose rights, whose privileges, whose agenda should be the most important? And the answer over and over again in each of these different relationships is we are to seek the good of others because it's glorifying to God. We are to seek the good of others because it's glorifying to God. He says, wives, submit to your husbands right? because it's fitting, because it's God's design for marriage. Husbands, love your wives, not being harsh or domineering, but gentle, compassionate, sacrificial, like Christ was. Fathers, parent in a way that creates this environment of grace. Don't provoke them towards anger. Servants or employees, work in a way that honors your master as if you are working for the Lord. A couple things I want to mention about our roles or responsibilities. First, uh, like I said earlier, to grow in maturity is to grow less selfish in our relationships. Okay, to grow less selfish in our relationships. And if you think of how children are they're selfish in their relationships, right? Like, they can't help it. That's just, they don't know yet, and so they're selfish. Like, can you imagine if they weren't? If they weren't, then we wouldn't have cry rooms because the babies would just be like, oh, you want to listen to your sermon? Okay, I'll, I won't cry right now, right? They're unable to think beyond themselves what they feel and what they want. And as we grow, hopefully, we're moving out of that more and more, right? Hopefully, we can start to consider others more and more, uh, but I, I think we can still be like that in college, right? Where we're just so curved in towards ourselves. Uh, for example, my time in college is the four years that I get, right, to selfishly spend on myself before I settle down somewhere, right, before I actually have real responsibilities. Or dating, it is about the long list of make-or-break qualities that I'm looking in a partner who can make me happy, right? That's, that's what dating is. Or church is about what I can gain, whether I like the message, whether I like the music, rather than how, can, how I can give or how I can love or contribute. Right, so that's the first thing is maturity is to grow less selfish in our relationships. Um, second thing I, wanted, I want you to think about is as college students, many of the roles that Paul mentions in this passage are actually roles that you probably don't even own yet. Right? Like, you're not in those roles yet. None of you, or a few of you, aside from the staffers, are, are husband, wife, parents, um, employers. Maybe some of you are employees. 
right? So like these don't even apply to us yet, really. But that doesn't mean that what he says here is useless for us right now, because we grow into those roles, right? Just as with anything, we grow into our responsibilities. There's a learning curve. Uh, for us, the day that I got married, I didn't suddenly learn that like all there was to know to being a husband. Uh, I, I knew very little, if anything at all, right? Just from premarital, and I'm still learning, and I'll still be learning for the rest of my life. And so, do you have that long view in mind? Right? These are maybe things that you will be doing someday, God willing. And so, are you preparing now? Right? As weird as it might sound, has it crossed your mind how you can prepare yourself more this week? or this year, to be, God willing, a future husband, or a wife, or a parent, or employee, or employer. Um, Guys, specifically, scripture teaches us that you should be moving toward your role as leaders, right? Whether that's in the home or in the church. In some capacity or another, we are, there's, there's like an expectation that we lead in some way, right? Our families or other people, do you know that? Like, do you recognize that? And do you own that? And what is one step that you can take to head in that direction? Maybe you don't have a lot of responsibilities right now, but how can you prepare for more to be given to you later on? So another mark of maturity is we're growing into fulfilling these roles and these responsibilities. And so to recap, just as we are expected to grow up and mature as human beings, we are also expected to be growing up into spiritual maturity as believers. And like I said, it'll look different for each of you, right? God grows us from different starting points at a different pace through different ways. And so it's in light of that I want to end with this really important point, which is that sanctification is a direction. Okay, sanctification is a direction. Turn with me to Philippians 3. And we'll read from verse 12 to 16. Paul writes in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this, or or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if, in any, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The big idea that I want you to take away from that passage is that sanctification is a direction. All right, verse 13, he says, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward, right? That's the direction, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Um, David Pallison has a helpful illustration for this. He says, we all remember high school math, right? Uh, a man drives uh, the 400 miles from Los Angeles to San Francisco, and he goes 60 miles per hour for two hours, and then 40 miles per hour for three hours, and he sits in one hour of traffic, not moving anywhere. And traffic lines up, and he can drive the rest of the way at 30 miles per hour. And the question is, how long will that trip take? Um, and if you calculate everything, like, you can actually figure that out, okay, which is like crazy to me. Um, do you guys remember the distance equals 
three times time. Yeah, so that's the formula, right? If you, if you plug in all of those information, all that data, like you can figure it out. You can actually figure out how long it's going to take for this guy to get to San Francisco from Los Angeles. And I think for us, um, Callison says we can treat sanctification like that. Right? We can treat it as this calculation of how far and how fast for how long. Right? You can treat it as this schedule uh, that we're just, we happen to be on. Like, this happens now, this happens then, and uh, stuff like that. But Pallison says that the key question in sanctification, right, or in growing up into maturity, the way that we put it tonight, the key question is whether you are even heading in the direction of San Francisco. Right? If you head east, you can drive 75 miles per hour for as long as you want, but you'll never get to San Francisco. If you're just sitting outside of L.A. with no idea of which direction you're supposed to go, you'll never get to San Francisco. But if you're headed in the right direction, you can go 10 miles per hour, you can go 80 miles per hour. You can get stuck in traffic, you can get out of your car, you can walk, you can even crawl on your hands and your knees. You can get out, you can lose your way, right? make a wrong U-turn, temporarily get turned around for a bit, but then you get strained out again. And at some point, you're going to make it there. Right? You'll get there. In fact, if you look at what Paul says in verse 15, he says, that those of us who are mature think this way. Yet that part of maturity is understanding that fact, that sanctification is about a direction. That you're, there's still, you're, you're headed in the right way. Are you going the right way? I think this is actually one of the biggest lessons that I try to communicate in counseling. Uh, with me and my counseling, we've sat down together for a couple months. We're working through this specific issue or struggle. And sometimes, like, there is dramatic victory, right? Praise God for that. There is a world of difference between the first session and the last session. But more often than not, the more important, them, the more important thing for them to know is here is what to expect. Right, this is what you can expect life to look like, sanctification to look like when you leave this counseling room and you're on your own, you're in just in the community of the church and we're not meeting anymore. That there will be seasons when you're, where, where you are leaping like a gazelle. There will be seasons where you are moving at this steady and measured walk. And there are seasons where you will be trudging on your hands and on your knees. But Hallison says, keep moving. That's the most important thing. Keep moving. And realize that even on the day that you die, right, whenever God decides to call you home, you'll still be somewhere in the middle. Right? You're still like on your way there. You're not there yet. And so sanctification and spiritual maturity involves obedience. Right? All the things that we just talked about, obedience, but also it involves wisdom. Okay, wisdom, and wisdom is what we just talked about. Um, John Murray, he puts it like this. He says, The law of growth applies, therefore, in the realm of the Christian life. God is pleased to work through the process. And to fail to take account of this principle is the sanctif- in the sanctification of the people of God is to frustrate both the wisdom of God and the grace of God. And then listen to this. He says, The man who acts as a child is a tragedy. The child who acts as a man is a monstrosity. Right? Did you get that? The man who acts like a child is a tragedy. Right? That's what we just talked about. If, you've ever, if you fail to grow up, if you're still a kid, like, you don't have basic life skills, and you're like 
50 years old. That's, that's super sad, right? That is a tragedy. What does he say on the flip side? He says, the child who acts like a man is a monstrosity, right? That's like something straight out of a scary movie. And God takes his time. And we need to be patient. And we take in one hand this truth that growing up is this drawn-out process. And we take in the other hand our daily need to make conscious decisions to grow and to be obedient in both the little things and in both the big things. And God says, we keep those two things in mind, and God moves us into Christ-like maturity. And David Pallison, again, he sums it up well. He says, we must have a vision for a long process, one that is lifelong, with a glorious end, right? That last day, it is actually going somewhere today. And that's our goal. And that is our expectation, to be growing up into spiritual maturity, and yet, along the process, we can trust that God is doing the work. And are we headed in the right direction? Are there steps that we can take today, this week, this month, to make sure that we can grow into who God wants us to become? Let's pray. Father, we uh, confess just our uh, failure to, to take this call seriously. Lord, there are so many areas of our life where maybe we've grown stagnant or complacent, where we don't feel the urgency of growing into maturity. Um, and uh, maybe some of us are even afraid because maturity hurts or because pruning hurts. And, and growing in certain areas requires us to make hard decisions and sacrifices. God, I pray that you would um, give us grace, Lord, to take the next step, to be moving in the right direction. Thank you, God, that you have not left us on our own to figure it out, but you've given us yourself, a spirit, who uh, gives us both the will to, to live for you and works that you've prepared for us beforehand. And I pray, Lord, that, uh, yeah, we would re- really make it our, our aim to pursue Christ, to be pressing on, forgetting what lies behind, Uh, straining on to what lies ahead and make us individually more Christ-like, make us a group as beacon more Christ-like for your glory. We thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.